Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. If you're wondering how you can subscribe to the podcast in a free and easy manner, then wonder no further. On thebigtravelpodcast.com, you can click the subscribe button, which will take you to somewhere you can do this. On iTunes, search for the Big Travel Podcast, or you can Google Big Travel Podcast and iTunes together, and then you'll find it on iTunes. Then just click on the subscribe button. It's very easy. If you have an Android phone, then download a podcast app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher and Pocket Casts. Just follow the directions to subscribe. It's very easy, it's all free and every Tuesday we will be bringing you a brand new episode with some amazing guests lined up. On to today's guest then. Not making it big on Broadway might have been frustrating for Balin Leonard at the time. But it was the UK's game, and despite having grown up in relative poverty in the Tennessee foothills, he's now a well-known radio presenter, DJ and broadcaster based in London, well-known for having been an integral part of the popular Danny Baker's team on BBC Radio London and spreading the country music love around the world. He's also on first-name terms with Dolly Parton. Now that, to me, is better than any Broadway part. Today's guest is the lovely Balin Leonard. It's probably fitting that we start in America. People will be able to tell by your beautiful voice that you are from <laughs> the South. Well, I'm amazed that you can tell that I'm from the South because m- most people are like, where are you from exactly? People never can figure it out because I've been in the UK for so long. I think that to non-British ears, they can't figure it out. But I'm originally from Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee boy from East Tennessee specifically in the mountains. So where I'm from, there's three mountain ranges that meet. The Great Smoky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and the Blue Ridge Mountains. So I'm kind of from the the hills and the foothills of those mountains. And what sort of upbringing did you have? I'm sort of half, I've been to Tennessee. I've oh been, yeah. I've been very lucky, I've been to Chattanooga. Chattanooga Choo Choo, yeah. Yeah, it was a great place. I'm sort of half visualizing beautiful sort of mansions and also <laughs> shacks and somewhere in between. Yeah, that it's might exactly be that, it's especially where I'm from. So Bristol's the name of the town that I'm from and actually Bristol, it's called the town that lies between two states because it's half in Tennessee and it's half in Virginia. The main street is called State Street and the yellow line is the state line. So, in it, but it's exactly that. So there's extreme wealth and extreme poverty all together in, in one location. So there's a lot of coal money there. And if you know anything about the coal industry, you'll know that the people who own the coal mines or run the coal mines are hugely wealthy. The people who work in the coal mines are less so. It's good in that 
a lot of that money from those coal mines went into building things like community centers and humanity centers and theaters and things like that for the community to use. But then on the flip side of that, a lot of my family were still back in the holler, as we said, and some of them didn't have indoor plumbing or you know hot water and things like that. And not just because they were poor, but also because of the culture. So they were hillbillies. That you know that's how they were raised. That's how they grew up. So they would farm, and we would eat what would be farmed and you know we would raise livestock and eat that and uh, we would raise tobacco and sell that so that was a big industry when I was growing up tobacco. So were you a is this a poor family you come from the, the yes. word hillbillies I mean I don't know if is that is that politically correct can we use hillbilly? I can say hillbilly I don't know if you can. Can I call you a hillbilly? <laughs> I'm absolutely a hillbilly I wear that badge with pride yeah I was I was very poor and not poor in even the romantic sense just poor my grandparents generation so on my mother's side he was a traveling preacher and on my father's side they were farmers and so that you can romanticize if you want, you know, that there's things that go along with that. That's that's kind of, you know, the good olden days and all that stuff. But but my immediate family, my mom and my dad, we were just poor, poor. You know, we I grew up in a trailer park for all of my life. It wasn't I, I moved away when I was 18. It was only after that that they actually bought like a bricks and mortar house. And I was like, oh, well, this is great. You know, years of of discrimination. And now you've actually got a house. But um I was talking about this with my sister because we grew up in this trailer park down the kind of these washed out mud and mud roads and gravel driveways and all this sort of stuff. Extremely kind of the worst kind of American poverty and on government assistance and food stamps and kind of all of that. But, and we had such a great childhood. Like we had so much fun because it was a real community in that trailer park. There were loads of kids to play with and we, we had you know loads of woods ar around us and loads of fields and um, that we could just play in all day long in, in the summertime. And so it wasn't until I got a little bit older in school that I realized like, oh, I'm really poor. But up until that point, it was quite a nice <laughs> it's quite a nice existence. It's quite romantic, I think, being poor when you're the kid playing and building dens and riding your bikes for hours and disappearing all mm. day, but probably less so for your parents. Oh, definitely less so for my parents. You know, I realise now the huge amount of stress that would have been involved in, in raising a family in those situations. And my dad was a factory worker and um, the factory that he worked at closed, you know, kind of a classic story that happens not just in America, but everywhere. The factory closed and then he was out of work and until he found another job. And my mom was obviously raising three kids and there's nothing that I really romanticize about that part of my life I'm really glad that I came from that and obviously it took me a long time to get to that point where I'm like oh yeah okay that taught me several lessons that are important later in life but certainly at the time once I realized kind of that I wasn't able to wear the same type of clothes as other people in my school or even do kind of activities that they would do you know I didn't learn to swim until about two years ago and it was only because my family couldn't afford the swimming lessons I was splashing around in lakes and rivers which probably isn't very safe for a child that doesn't know how to swim so we, we did that but I never really learned how to swim so there's a lot of things that I didn't do because of, of poverty but there's a lot of really great life lessons that I learned. Are we bullied at school I mean we've got in the UK we've got 
two images of American high schools, a bit like, you know, the mentions version versus the hillbillies, if I may be as bold as you to can. Call You're allowed you a to hillbilly. say hillbilly. Only in front of me, though. Okay, you can't say it behind fine. my back. I'm not going to go and <laughs> say it to anyone say random. When I get, next time I go to the States, I'm not going to go and randomly call people hillbillies, <laughs> yeah, just don't. in case. But we've got two, a double sort of image of American high schools. We've got these amazing, you know, I grew up and adoring America in the 80s. You know, America is the, the coolest thing ever. And we grew up on all these TV shows, you know, where everyone's got their lockers and all these fabulous yeah, I had a outfits. And you had a locker, those lockers are brilliant. And they have all these clothes and wonderful, you know, a little bit bitchy with the girls or whatever, but all those typical high school coming of age TV shows and movies. And then we've also got the image that everyone's sort of like, you know, shooting each other up and there's metal detectors and it's all quite a scary place to be now. I mean, what, what was it like for you in, in high school or school in, in Tennessee? In my area, there are four high schools. The two states, there was one, you know, Virginia High and then there was Tennessee High and those were kind of the city schools. And then there was another one that was a bit further out, it was pretty much another county, but kind of in the catchment area. And then there was the really poor rural high school. And I, of course, went to that one. So was I bullied? Yeah. I was bullied. I was bullied for being poor and um, for various other things as well. But um, I don't have like a sob story to tell about it necessarily. Like, it certainly wasn't fun when in it, but I don't feel like I came out of it scarred or anything like that. Like I actually think that I came out of it quite resilient about that whole thing. I do remember one specific time though. We had to, I can't remember what the class was, but for some reason on graph paper, we had to kind of draw kind of a layout of our house, you know, like where we lived and in the rooms. And I, I can't remember if it was, I, I have no idea what it was for, but I remember I doing it. I can already see how that's not going to go well when you live in a trailer. Exactly. So I drew kind of the, the floor plan of where I, I lived. And I was actually quite proud of it because at this point we had bought a new trailer. You know, like we, because I grew up in a, quite an old one, and then around fifth grade, how old are you there? Like 12, 13 maybe? We got a brand new trailer because my dad got a new job and all this sort of stuff. It's still a trailer, but it was brand new. And that was really exciting, and I was quite proud of that. And I remember I, I, drew, I drew this this kind of layout of, of my trailer and was really proud of it. And then this person behind me who was just quite awful, she was looking at it and my, I'd taken my eye off it and she had drawn like at the very bottom of it another kind of box and she wrote trailer in front of mine and I thought oh that still makes me go a bit oh it doesn't actually make it doesn't hurt my feelings or make me like sad or anything like that it just makes me think what a bitch <laughs> and you know I do also think hmm I wonder where she is now and she was actually somebody that was kind of part of the kind of friend circle that that I was in so but but she was always quite awful like maybe she we should try and dig her out from somewhere we've got lots of <laughs> listeners in Tennessee <laughs> yeah, maybe. we might find her should we say her name uh, no that's not I'm sure she's I'm sure she's leading a happy life and if she's not I, I hope that she is so there you are living and growing up in Bristol Tennessee yep surrounded by culture and country music which we'll get to that in a minute how did you get from this impoverished upbringing by all accounts a nice upbringing but a poor one to being you're very well known in the UK and you've, you've had like a, a great radio career a broadcasting career DJ and and now in country music how on earth did you get from that trailer park upbringing to where you are now? I think that actually growing up poor means that I've always kind of been a ducking and diving kind of all my life uh, in some sort of way. But the journey, if you will, of how I actually got there is that I auditioned for a theater school in New York when I was 17 and they had regional auditions. So the closest one to me was in Atlanta, Georgia. 
and um, actually kind of what got me out of my high school, maybe high school would have been worse for me, except I had an outlet in that I got really involved at the local community theater. And um, somehow, not only did that kind of save me from, you know, it, it, without sounding too dramatic, what was going on in high school and even going on at home, but most kids who do community theater, at least in America, they're quite well off. They're quite wealthy. So I suddenly had all of these and in theater, everybody's a freak anyway, so kind of nobody cares about all that stuff. Everybody's just happy that they're, you know, get to, to flounce about on the stage. So I had loads of friends from other high schools, and uh, it just opened up a whole new world for me. And I suddenly thought, oh, this is how I can get out. Because I had always, well, I'd always known I would leave that town. Um, but I didn't really know how I would. So I think when I got involved with theater, I was like, ah, this could be the way out. So anyway, I auditioned for this theater school in New York. And anyway, I got accepted. And then I was like, oh God, how do I go now? Because I knew my family couldn't afford to send me there. There's no scholarships for stuff like that. So I had, I think it was like eight months I had between getting accepted and the time I'd have to move to New York. And, um, the best paying jobs back home were factory jobs. So my dad got me a job at his factory and I worked the whole time saving money to be able to move to New York and I made drill bits for coal mines and I worked on an assembly line and actually had a really great time working there. Everybody was really lovely and it also spurred me on because I remember there were these two sisters that had been working there. And every year, their big vacation, their big holiday was that they would load up the camper van and they would drive from Tennessee to the other end of the country and go to Las Vegas, stay there for a few days and then drive back. That's a long way. It's a long way. But part of the fun for them wasn't about being in Vegas. It was about actually the journey. And I remember they got back from their holiday that year, and they said they would count down how long it would take until they could retire. And they said something like, only 20 more years and we can retire. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I, whatever I do, I have to make sure that I don't come back and do this for the rest of my life. Not because there's anything wrong with doing that job at all. I just knew that I couldn't do it for the rest of my life. So that kind of made me go, right. So flew off to New York City, which was the first time I'd ever been on a plane, and moved to New York. Age 17? Uh, I was 18 by the time, yeah, by the time I moved. That must have been terrifying, liberating, and many, many things. What, what was, was New York like at the time? What year are we talking? So I can visualize it. So this is 1992. It was a really great time, actually, New York, because 42nd Street was still like the old romantic image of what as I use quotes with romantic image of what 42nd Street was you know it was still porn theaters and go-go bars like the automat that was like drawers of windows of hot food basically you put a quarter in and get out a hot dog and there was hookers and pimps and like literally everything that you kind of imagine kind of 70s 80s New York to be covered in graffiti and Mayor Giuliani had just been elected so I was there luckily to see that 42nd Street that was, and then during my time in New York, it obviously transitioned into the 42nd Street as we know now, which is clean and bright and beautiful and totally redone, and you know, Disney and Broadway, new theaters, and very much a destination, very safe as well. So I got a little bit of both of kind of the New Yorks, and yeah, it was all those things. It was thrilling, it was exciting, it was scary, it was totally liberating. I remember I'd done so much research because I wanted to be prepared and I didn't want to come across like a hick. 
in the city and you know I'd go to my local library and I remember like I would steal books about New York it was terrible to steal from a library I wanted to read everything I could about New York so it wasn't any like in-depth things it was travel guides to New York but from those I learned how much a taxi should cost from the airport to the Upper West Side which is where my kind of student accommodation was I remember getting in that taxi trying to be all prepared and I remember I'd read um, that you should always write down the badge number of your cab <laughs> in case something goes wrong and you shouldn't put your luggage in the in the boot or the trunk because you know they could steal it so I was in the back of this cab all, with my luggage all piled up around me like discreetly writing down the, the badge number so Who that I wouldn't be... Who writes this stuff in that guidebook? I'd love to read that guy. Ridiculous, right? Ask the name and dress of the driver so he doesn't take you anywhere. <laughs> I know, anywhere. I know. But um, at the time I thought I was handling it brilliantly, you know, I thought yeah, I've got this big city stuff of course looking back I was just like this hick in New York City but but there I was and that was the main thing my biggest memory of that entire day is that not the flying or any of that which was also hugely exciting and the taxi and the I remember flying in over the city and looking down and being like oh my god I'm gonna live in that and then getting from the taxi to the school which was in the Upper West Side and kind of getting all signed in and then them taking me to the apartment that I was going to be in because it wasn't dorms it was actually apartments that you had to to rent and you know other people in the building weren't students it was an apartment building but when I was taken to that apartment and the door closed and the person who had taken me left my roommate wasn't there and I was alone for the very first time in New York City and I remember walking around the room being so excited but also hearing something and I couldn't figure out what it was and I remember I was looking everywhere going like what is this noise like what something's on or so I couldn't figure it out and then I passed by the window and I stuck my I opened the window and stuck my head outside and I realized it was the sound of the city and it was I still get chills now even thinking about it because it was so exciting because I you know I'd never heard that sound before ever I never even knew that a place could have a sound and it was just like that hum of, of New York City and I found it so exciting and actually to this day I still need to sleep with kind of a fan on or white noise or the window open and because I love the sound of city you know of traffic or of just a buzz and I find I, I just it, it's so exciting I'm still excited about it now because I can still remember how visceral I felt when I, I figured out what it was once you get used to that I mean I find the countryside quite terrifying I'm I okay in the daytime I was like, oh this is pretty but as soon as no darkness falls it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's know. noises you don't recognize you can't see anything people have detached houses there's no way I could ever live in a detached house which is lucky because I probably won't ever have one the countryside gets terrifying when once yeah I don't like it. it to be too quiet um, I, need, I need a bit of uh, yeah I need a bit of a buzz and a bit of a hum and also I still like to live you know up um, and I think that comes from growing up in a trailer I like to live in a place where you have to climb stairs to get to and um, I like skyscrapers and I like you know being above kind of ground level I, I really like that sort of stuff so how did you get from New York one skyscraper city to another one we're growing skyscrapers here in London how did what was the move what, what sort of brought you here well, I think I'd been in New York with some bits in between. Uh, you know, I'd ended up in Houston for a little while. And um, of course, having gone there, never been anywhere, never flown and never been out, out of my parents' house. You know, there was a m I get a little bit confused about this, but I know that I had to spend some months back in Bristol as well, kind of around the Houston period. But anyway, I ended up back in New York. And by the time, like 2000, 1999, you know, everybody's got that cult millennium thing happening. I was thinking, I've been in New York now for, you know, nine years or 
eight, whatever it was, almost 10 years. And I really liked New York, but ultimately I, you know, I was a bartender. I did voiceovers and stuff and a bit of kind of theater here and there, but you know, I, I hadn't become the Broadway star that I had envisioned when, <laughs> when I left the trailer park. But I really liked my life, but I was also like, like, what's the next thing that I could do? What's bigger than New York? And I thought about other cities in America, like Chicago or LA or something like that. But like a lot of Americans, I had this kind of fascination with the UK and with London and, and what that was like. And I thought, well, they also, they speak English there. so. <laughs> that should be easier than going to somewhere like Australia or something. <laughs> um, so I thought, uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to go to London. I'll go and see what that's like. So I kind of didn't really know what I was going to do, you know, like when I got here. And I got a two-year visa, and I thought, well, I'll go for two years and see what happens. And then Did renewed, you have any contacts, renewed. or did you just turn up? Did you look no, for work? Did you know anyone? I knew this guy who... I'd met in New York who was a, uh, he filmed concerts. So he filmed like musical concerts. So when I moved over here, I went to a dinner party that he was having and there were loads of people. He was like, you know, there'll be loads of people to, to meet. And I was sitting beside of someone who said, what do you do? And being new to a city, you can kind of say you do anything and people can roll with it. But I did base it in fact. I said, oh, I do voiceovers. And she went, oh, they are looking for an American voiceover at the radio station I work at. So I should put you in contact. And I was like, yeah, great, great, great. Uh, and she did. And it turns out that uh, she was a presenter on Radio 1. <laughs> Our <laughs> biggest youth culture radio station, I yeah. should say. BBC Radio 1. Um, but I actually didn't really have a clue what Radio 1 was, because of course now we have BBC America and, and BBC is obviously well known, but I, I kind of thought that the BBC was a little bit like PBS in America, you know, publicly funded, and obviously PBS has now changed its, its image as well. But anyway, I didn't have a clue that it, it was as big as it, it was. And I certainly didn't know that Radio 1 was like their biggest station, right? Anyway, she hooked me up and I went in and they wanted me to do a series of trails, like adverts, for um, their breakfast show, the biggest show on that network. Again, I didn't really know. And it was hosted by Sarah Cox at that time, who's a big celebrity here, obviously. Uh, so I did this series of trails for Radio 1, just thinking it was, I was just happy to have somewhere to go and have something to do and to make a little bit of money. And then after a while of doing that, I kind of liked being in a radio studio. So I was like, oh, I quite like being in a radio studio. Maybe I'll do radio. Because you know when you don't know how something works, you're quite, quite gung-ho about it. You're like, oh, I'll do radio. It's probably the best way to be. If you'd have it known is. that it was such a big station and it was such a big show, you probably would have had some I'd have been really nerves. intimidated, yeah. Whereas it was, I was just excited that I had something to go and do. But I thought, if I'm going to do radio, I probably need to know how radio works. So I found this kind of night class about radio production. So I went and took this class. And one of the guys who was teaching that class worked at BBC Radio London. And I had another contact that I'd met at BBC Radio London. And... I said, oh, I really want to come in and do work experience. And I went in and I had a week of work experience at BBC London. And at the end of the week, I turned to the producer and I went, I really like this. I'm going to come back next week. And she was like, ah, uh, OK. And I basically just kept showing up. And then because I'd taken this class, I knew how to do audio things. So my kind of thing that I was doing at that time was I would write the script for the competition back when the BBC could do competitions. So I would write the script, you know, we're giving away this book and answer this question. 
And of course I decided to big my part up. So I started making audio packages that I of course would voice about the competition and I would put them in the system and I would say to the producer, here's the script, but I also made you an audio package that you can use if you want to. And at first I think she was a bit like, okay, know your place. But eventually she started using them. Classic story, somebody got ill, something that I'd set up for a reporter to go out and do, they got ill and they sent me out to do a report. And then I just kept trying to you know, elbow my way in and eventually did loads of different shows on Radio London, eventually got paired up with Danny Baker. Danny Baker is, for those people who don't know, he's probably one of our best loved broadcasters for many, many people. I mean, I know people who are obsessed by Danny Baker. He's probably the gold standard yes, of radio. I know, I know several people who are obsessed with him as well. Uh, probably Danny Baker himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's who I was thinking of. But um, you ended up in the, a show that I used to listen to all the time. Danny Baker with, I would call you sidekicks, but I guess you were the producer as well, were you? Yeah, I eventually became the producer as well. When I started, I was just the sidekick and with him with as well. And with Amy LeMay as well, who's yeah. another wonderful human being, which I, I'd love to have her on the podcast. Yeah, so she I'll actually is the, the well. other person that helped me get in at, at BBC London because she was an American and she, she hosts a club night that she still runs um, that I would go to. And I was like, oh, she's American and she's on the radio. Maybe she'll have some tips. And much to her credit, I sent her an email and asked her to meet up for a drink, and she did. And then kind of helped put in the word for me to, to get into that, that work experience. So, yeah, Amy became a very dear and close friend over the years. That's what you've got to do, and, and to have that confidence to contact people. I mean, nine out of ten times, people could completely ignore you, but if you have the oh, guts they do. to just and they do. email, <laughs> yes, and they do. Well, they and they still do. Yeah. So it's, you know. <laughs> Actually, maybe it's 10 out of 10. <laughs> Every now and then you get that little one and it can make all the difference to people. Mm. And it's nice now that you're in the position to make a difference to other people. Do you remember that and do you try and sort of give back, give back when you can? Oh God, yes, I absolutely do. And I'm always mortified if for some reason an email or any sort of message slips through the net because you know like you're on the go and you'll see it and go ah but because you've read it then it won't necessarily show up in your anyway you know how that works but I really try and respond to everybody um, and certainly now I get a lot of bands and artists sending me their music and I always try to respond to that because I know what that feels like and to some degree I, I guess I still know what it feels like because it, it that continues to happen it just happens on bigger levels. No, I'm very, very aware of what that's like and I, I always make a, an effort to make sure that I respond to people and also try and help them if I can do. Because yeah, uh, without people doing that, you know, I would, I would certainly wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Especially when you come, you know, London and I think New York and, and bigger cities like this, in fact, probably every town works like this, often it's about who you know. And if you are mm. a poor kid living in a trailer or don't even have to be in a trailer, but you if you don't have parents that live in the centre of the city that you want to work in, where the action is in media or banking, whatever industry you want to go in, that you can then afford to go and stay with them and then do maybe some free work, yeah. then this is how it, it holds people back and how the class divides stay very much as a, a class divide. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, I wouldn't have been able to afford to do work experience at Radio London had I not been doing the occasional voiceover at Radio One. And, you know, I, I don't want to misrepresent this. Like, it didn't, I, I wasn't paying a lot of money to do these. It was I just... know exactly what you were paying because it's publicised <laughs> what you were paying, actually. Because Danny Baker on his last show, you know, uh, in a bit of a, a huff, he, he did this big 
flouncing thing and, and told everyone what Overborn was paid, which was not much and sort of, you know, rightly so said, this is probably the best show on our airwaves at the moment and if ever. And, you know, these people are doing it for more love than money. And as he flounced, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, a lot of people ask me if I had a problem with that. And I didn't have a problem with that because I know it's a very American thing to talk about what you get paid. But I actually think that's really useful because if you are kind of blindly negotiating or not even negotiating you're just blindly accepting what people are paying you how do you know that that that's right you know how do you know that somebody's not getting paid more than you for doing less than you even with doing Danny's show I mean that was kind of always a loss leader when we were doing the breakfast show we were paid quite you know a, a normal kind of radio wage which was fine because the breakfast show is always the biggest show on any station so they pay more but the afternoon slot the budget's much smaller and it was more like do you want to do it we would love you to but we only have this amount of money to do it and of course we did i was always working other things whether it was other radio or other voiceovers or djing um, quite a bit i was always doing something else it was never enough to live on just doing that show i'm very interested in your music Mm. and your passion, obsession maybe for country music. I don't need to ask where that came from because it's, I, I can see where it's come from, but what are you doing with the country music? And also along those lines, how is it living as an American in London? <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it, it took me a while to adjust to it when I first moved here. Because also keep in mind that I moved here as George W. Bush was taking office. And, and now, of course, we long for the days of George W. Bush. But at that time, there was a real anti-American vibe that was happening that, I, that totally took me by surprise. I was really naive and thought, oh, in America, we love people with British accents. So British people must love people with American accents. We do. We do in many ways. Do you <laughs> that, not, was that not your experience? It certainly didn't come across in the, in the first year. Uh, but also, I, I mean, now I've lived here long enough that I've got this really bizarre kind of hybrid thing happening. But there are certain words that you have, even though it's the same language, it's actually, it was actually much more difficult than I thought it would be. You know, I should have moved to Japan or something where I just was be pre totally prepared for this completely different language. Or even Australia, as I mentioned earlier, obviously, you know, they speak English, but I know that they use loads of different words for different things. Whereas in, I didn't really know that so much in England. So getting out of habits of like, same pants when you mean trousers and then people are, think you're talking about your underwear and there are just all the different parts of a car that are called different or going to the grocery store and all the different herbs are, are different even the word herb is different herb. You know? so um what about if you were to ask for a glass of water in a uh, oh, in a pub what do you ask forever for forever that but that happens to you guys when you go to america as well water seems to be the one so i would say water and yeah, nobody would ever understand that. So you, you just have to over kind of, you know, water. And then they're, they're, and you feel really silly, don't you? And then I feel like I'm absolutely, I mean, the one thing that I've stuck to is that I still say tomato. Yeah. I can't I think bring we myself. know what that is. I think we can yeah. make a good guess, even if you don't know. I can't bring myself to say tomato. I feel so <laughs> ridiculous saying it. But other things like, you know, instead of saying cell phone, of course, I say mobile. Now, the word mobile, we would say is mobile. But because I'm already changing the word of what I'm calling something, I might as well go with mobile because saying mobile is just, it, you know, it's just little things like that. But I love it now. At first, I was like, I've left behind my whole life in New York City. I had, a, I had a fine life. I really liked everything about it. What have I done? You know, I've given everything up. I remember I had a real chat with myself one night when I was kind of really in the weeds with it during that first year. And I thought, maybe I'll just move back to New York. And um, I thought, no, I worked too hard to get here. So I really owe it a proper shot. And I also need to stop comparing it to New York. 
you know, I need to look at London for what London has to offer as opposed to what's missing from, from New York. And uh, that was a real kind of moment for me because as soon as I made that decision, it all changed. What is missing? Well, you know, it was, it was mainly things at that time that I was really used to kind of the 24-hourness of, of New York, not just in terms of the convenience and, you know, you can, you can have a coffee delivered to your apartment if you want to in New York at 3 o'clock in the morning, like anything you want, it, it's there. The, the public transport runs all the time. Of course, now we have the 24-hour tube, and that's really great, and our tube is by far, it's leaps and bounds ahead of the New York subway system. The New York subway system is falling to bits and our tube is really great, you know, and we have new stations and new trains and even the ones that aren't are still, everything's great about it. So I get it all now. And, and then I, I started liking the fact that, you know, pubs would close at 11. Obviously all this has changed now with 24 hour licensing and stuff. But when I first moved here, I quite liked that. You know, I got to the point where I was like, oh, I quite like that you know you have to do this by a certain time and Sunday trading hours and, so New York is this really user-friendly city, I think. You know, like everything's super convenient, everything's right there. Yeah, it's fast-paced, and every, you know, it's a grid, so it's actually really difficult to get lost in most of Manhattan. And London is this big, churning animal that's spread out and reaches in every direction and just is massive and goes on forever, and everything's quite difficult. <laughs> but actually, once you crack that code, it makes you appreciate it so much more because you've worked harder to get it and to understand it and to kind of find your place in it. So once you do that, I think you appreciate it so much more. I love London. I love it. And I can't imagine living anywhere else. You know, I, I just love everything about it. And I am fully and completely a Londoner, regardless of my accent and, and everything else. But I'm, I think London is just one of the most exciting and wonderful cities in the world. And, and not that I don't love New York still, I go back to New York and I like it, but I also go back to New York and it's not London. Is travel further afield important to you? Do you go to other places apart from London and New York? Yeah, I do. I, I, even now, I, I love that, that I get to travel. And now I get to travel for work and country music and, and all of that stuff. So I get to go back to Nashville quite a bit, um, which means I then go hop in a car and go see my family. And so that is a real joy for me that, that travel has become a part of not only my professional life, but it takes me back home as well. But traveling further afield, you know, I still haven't been to Australia. I still haven't been to the Far East or anywhere like that. I think that even though I've been here for ages, I've been covering Europe quite extensively because it still is exciting as an American to be able to travel to any European country and, and be there in, in quite a, a quick time. And you can go there for a weekend and all that stuff. So that stuff is really exciting for me. Um, Where have you liked particularly? I love Amsterdam. I love Prague. I, I spend a lot of time in Spain, certainly in, in the summer. And I'm just thinking this year I'm going to go to Mexico, which I've only ever been to Juarez, Mexico, which is a border town. But I have quite a bit of work in kind of Nashville and that area in September. And I'm going to take the whole of October off and I think just go down and explore Mexico a bit more. So you're traveling all, of, all over the, with your country music. One of the things that stands out to me about your country music is your association with Dolly Parton. Tell me about uh, that, because yeah. who doesn't love Dolly? I mean, that's pretty fabulous. Well, Dolly is from kind of, not the next town over, but my area. My mom was actually born in her hometown. And of course her theme park, Dollywood, is something that we would always go to as a kind of family vacation when I was young. And Radio 2, 
like a year or two ago, very kindly asked me if I would fly to America and interview Dolly Parton for a, a, a special for Radio 2. And I was like, yes, yes, I will. So I flew off. She was on tour. So I went to uh, St. Louis where she was and I got to sit down and have a full hour with Dolly Parton and we made it into a two-hour special called When Tennessee Boy Meets Tennessee Girl or something like that. And what was great about that is that obviously Dolly's a complete pro and you know can handle any interviewer, but A, because I had an hour, I felt like we had time to actually talk, and B, because I had loads of reference points of where we're from and things that I think no matter how much research you would do, you wouldn't be able to dig out. So. It's funny because I came all this way to London and I've ended up being closer to where I'm from than I ever was when I was there because um, you ask about the country music thing earlier. I didn't really like country music growing up because you don't really like the stuff that you grow up around, do you? And it took me going away from that. And now all of my radio and pretty much my entire career is focused on country music. So all my radio shows are country music. I curate a couple of festivals that are country music, um, one that's free in London called Nashville Meets London, and then the big project this year is a big outdoor camping festival in the Midlands called The Long Road, um, which is happening in September, and we've just announced 39 acts for that, and I got loads of kind of organizations that work in country music and Americana music involved with it, both British and American. And that's funny and also exciting, but it's also crazy that, because if you'd asked me when I was 18 and getting on that plane to go to New York City, if I would end up working in country music, I would have thought you were crazy. You'd be like, no way. <laughs> no way, yeah, but now I love it. And it's a way also it keeps me from, obviously I love it, but it keeps me from feeling homesick as well in, in a weird way, you know, because I, I get to have a little bit of where I'm from here where I live, you know, and, and I feel like they're both my homes and it's really nice to combine those things together. That's really lucky, I think. It's amazing how we spend all this time thinking about getting away and, and planning to get away, then actually deep down in your heart, mm. home is always there. Exactly, yeah, and you know what, now I'm so thankful for where I'm from because I would never be doing what I'm doing if, it, if I hadn't have been born in the official birthplace of country music, Bristol, Tennessee. So that brings me very nicely on to my last question, which is always about music, because to me, music and travel go hand in hand because I listen to music and it's very evocative and brings up wonderful memories of, of travel for a lot of people. If you had to pinpoint one track that we could play that reminds you of a time or place where you've traveled to London, New York, Tennessee, or home, what would that song be? Oh, there's one that I reference quite a lot when I'm traveling or when I'm packing to go home, and it's a country artist called Brad Paisley, and it's called Southern Comfort Zone. It, <laughs> it's so uh, appropriate for me because it's all about how you sometimes have to leave kind of where you're from in order to kind of, you know, get where you're going or, or however you want to say it. But, but I mean, that is a, that's a go-to for me. Yeah, that, that would be the one that, certainly when I'm traveling to Nashville or I'm doing anything around Tennessee and I'm going or coming from, from London and Nashville, that one is like a soundtrack for me. Thank you so much for joining me on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. I don't even know if I talked that much about travel, but I, no, no, that you I did, talked about you something. No, did, It's all your stuff is where <laughs> you're from is travel. Thank you so much, Bailey. I really enjoyed that. I'm already a massive fan of Cowboy Boots, Talk Radio, Talk Sports and...
Virgin Radio or brilliant stations, please give him a listen. And thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.